0: nation, history, we hear about the breath. And we have a breath song. We have a breath song. Mm Yes. And uh, it's called
1: um, On the Breath of Our Grandmothers. I don't know the song, but doesn't that sound good <laughs>
2: on the Yes, it does. On the breath of our grandmothers, yes. and yeah. i heard on the breath of our ancestors as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. and beautiful.
3: Ancestors is yes. better because that includes the grandpas too.
2: Yes. Yeah, I, I, it's amazing how we can go on a journey just with our breathing, and it takes us, it can actually take
0: the continuum the united states used to be lots of fun back when the
3: Do, 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 do. That's our music that usually plays, our theme music, but I can't play it because our um, software won't open for some reason, so we have to forego the theme music tonight. But I will just tell you, welcome to the Arts Report for January 22nd, 2014. Tonight, we have TJ Daw in the studio to talk about his one-man play, Medicine, which is currently playing at the Firehall Arts Theatre. And I'll also uh, be playing my interview with the illustrious Eric Rutherford from Ryberg.com. He'll be here uh, this coming Sunday at the PUSH Festival. I'll be giving away tickets to Seagull, which is currently playing at UBC Theatre. And stay tuned at 6 p.m. for the first episode of the new year um, as part of our Blank Verse series. So welcome, TJ. Thank
2: you
3: very much. Great to be here. Yeah. Let's see. Can you say something else? I can
2: say as much as you'd like me to
3: say. Okay. Because, oh, there we go. Now you're turned on. Yeah.
2: Do I still sound far? No. Okay. <laughs> now I'm right close to the microphone. I'm yeah, right that's good. Yeah, that's good.
3: Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming up. It's a long trek from presumably East Van.
2: Um, downtown, actually. Okay. Yeah, I live downtown. Right on. And I just came from the matinee of the show, actually. Wednesday is a two-show day. There's a matinee, mm-hmm. a pay-what-you-can a matinee at 1 o'clock. Now I'm here, and then I'm back to the theater after this for an eight o'clock show tonight.
3: Oh my goodness! Well, I went last, I guess, last week uh, to see it, and I really enjoyed it. I'm friends with Victoria Maxwell. Do you know her?
2: Uh, I think we're Facebook friends. Yes. I, I I've hung yeah. With her.
3: Yeah. She does sort of one woman shows. Okay. Um, so it, there were similarities in the style, I guess. It's a thing. Like, what's your understanding of one person shows of what you have to do? to convey your message like wearing all black and (laughs) the different things
2: (laughs) it's different for everyone some people do a one-person show where they're playing a variety of characters where they transform themselves they put on a costume change or some people have shows where there's a lot of technology involved and some people just stand or sit on stage and tell a story and that's closer what i do Mm -hmm.
3: yeah you really reveal a lot about yourself yes it's like getting to know you yeah as you sort of Talk about who you are and different aspects of your childhood and
2: and the deepest layers to me, yeah, yeah, definitely. My work is always autobiographical, or at least my solo shows are always autobiographical, and it's been a continual quest to dig deeper every time to reveal more, just to see what what's in there, what makes sense, you know what what can I find deep down inside that makes a story that actually makes sense to other people too, that isn't just me being indulgent on stage mm-hmm. talking about myself, mm-hmm. but that brings everybody in.
3: Yeah, and so this isn't the first. One man show you 've done
2: it 's the twelfth actually oh
3: my goodness, yeah, and you 've made quite a career of it. It sounds like
2: this is what I do for my job, yeah, mm-hmm. I write and perform autobiographical monologues, and I tour them mostly across Canada, sometimes in the states, sometimes overseas. I also work with other people, I direct them or co write with them or create with them.
3: yeah, no, it was amazing what I do so tell us a little bit more specifically about the one you're doing medicine and Gabor Maté and all that great stuff.
2: So in 2010, I wrote an autobiographical monologue called Lucky Nine, which was among other things about my discovery and interest in Gabor Maté's work. Now, if anybody doesn't know who he is, he's a UBC grad, actually, and a a Vancouver doctor. He's not practicing as a physician anymore. But for years, he was a family practitioner. Then he worked in palliative care at VGH. And then he was chief physician for the Portland Hotel Society, then downtown Eastside, which is universally regarded as the poorest most drug adult neighborhood in North America along the line he, he started writing and he wrote a book on ADD he wrote a book on attachment he co-wrote a book on attachment parenting he wrote a book on how stress compromises the immune system then he wrote a book on addiction and because of his work on addiction people started asking him about ayahuasca have you ever heard of ayahuasca have you heard that ayahuasca is a possibly effective treatment for addiction he'd never heard of it so he tried it ayahuasca is a powerful psychedelic plant medicine that comes from the Amazon rainforest in Peru and in Brazil. It's been used for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years by the First Nations population there. And he tried it at a local ceremony, and in his own words, he said he got it. He just got it, how it can affect someone, how it can open their heart, how it can put them in tune with their deepest pain, which in his book on addiction he describes is the reason anyone's addicted to something. It doesn't matter if it's cocaine or heroin or crystal meth or the Internet or relationships or shopping, or anything like that, addiction is always a means to soothe pain. So when someone's in chronic pain, it's worth asking, okay, where does the pain come from? Sometimes people know, you know. They know it's because my people were subjugated, or because I was physically or sexually abused, or because my family was completely rootless and we moved 10 times before I was 5 years old, or my parents were divorced. Sometimes people know. Sometimes people don't know. They'll say I came from a perfectly happy home. My parents loved me, and they supported me in everything I did, and yet I wound up with an eating disorder, and yet I wound up cutting, and yet, you know, any number of given things. Ayahuasca helps you explore what's really going on, what you have suppressed, what you're not allowing yourself to see, and what you need to do to heal. So when I did this show that was partially about how Gabor's work had come into my life, he saw it, and was very impressed that I seemed to get his ideas, and I seemed to understand that... um, it is worthwhile to try and seek out the truth about oneself, whether the truth is what you want it to be or not. So he told me about these retreats that he led. He didn't want to sell me on it because ayahuasca is not an easy thing to do. And if somebody is not ready for it, they shouldn't do it. And they should know that if they do it, they're in for possibly one of the worst experiences of their life, (laughs) even though it may ultimately be cathartic. So I went, and that's exactly what I experienced. Mm -hmm. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. And then the second one, there were two ceremonies over the course of a week, The second one was one of the most redemptive and cathartic. So I wrote a one-man show describing that whole experience, what it was like to go on this retreat, what issues I was there to explore, what parts of my family background led up to that, why my issues were my issues, and then what I discovered under the influence of this plant medicine that I hadn't expected at all.
3: Mm-hmm. It was beautifully done. I love the way you open with this sort of passage, and then you close with the same passage that loops it back together.
2: Beginning with the ending. Yeah. Ending with the beginning, yes.
3: There's been, I I, I think, there's been quite a re- response to it. You know, people are hungry. Like, it reminds me that people are hungry for answers, and they're hungry for something. There's been so much interest in ayahuasca,
2: yeah normal methods of treating addiction have failed spectacularly Mm -hmm. Uh, the western medical system can treat symptoms generally for things like depression but it generally doesn't seem to get to the root of it whereas traditional healing modalities like this are gaining more interest from people Mm -hmm. because people are starting to look for alternatives Mm -hmm. ayahuasca is one that on the one hand is illegal in canada on the other hand can work wonders. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything. And then once you have this experience, it's up to you to come up with some kind of practice to integrate what you've learned into your life. So it's not like you just go and you drink this tea and then you're fixed.
3: Yeah. I guess it's funny because I, I'm, my job is as a group counselor and I've studied with one of you know the world's experts in group therapy here at UBC, Marv Westwood, who does very intensive sort of 1970s kind of uh, psychodrama with veterans and other people and so I'm very into group therapy and I enjoyed that part of you talking about the group experience Which and it was
0: I, very
2: difficult for me to participate in. yeah I'm very socially alienated sort of find myself in a week's worth of group therapy was
0: terrifying uh,
3: anxiety provoking oh, yeah. and you know um so and I have had a wild kind of life you know before my 40s settled down but um Yet I found, like, the the therapies they're doing, you know, kind of MDMA therapies and ayahuasca, different drug therapies. I found myself quite against them, I guess. So Megan sent me to see the play, and we had, like, a mini-argument about it as we discussed it a few weeks before. And I was like, I'm not into this, you know, um, and... So we agreed I'd go to the play with an open mind, and you were so charming and, and endearing. I, you know, I was like, well, I would do ayahuasca, you know, except for the puking, vomiting part of the ayahuasca. It's very experience. very common to
2: vomit profusely, yeah.
3: And uh, I actually have a very powerful, deep seated phobia of vomit that that I actually maybe I should go and do it with the bucket and everything. Mm-hmm. But
2: you, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a horrifying prospect to me to intentionally take something that is going to make me sick to my stomach. Yeah,
3: and I, I just, I was having quite a reaction in the play because you couldn't throw up.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, and, I dry heaved. I spent an entire evening or an entire night, all the all the night through, sick to my stomach and dry heaving, and never once actually feeling the relief of having something come
3: up. Yeah, I know. And as you were dry heaving in the performance, I was like clutching onto my friend, like, oh my god, you know. I can't even stay. I was like feeling compelled to run out like Mm. temporarily uh, while the driving was going on. But I wondered if it was kind of a metaphor, like other people were releasing so easily and you were like hanging on kind of. Well,
2: something that comes up in the play is that we had been told that it's perfectly all right to ask for help if you need it. If you have any difficulties, talk to Gabor, talk to the shamans. You know, it's not Gabor who's, who's administering the ayahuasca. It's trained shamans. And it didn't even occur to me to do so. And something Gabor pointed out after the fact was my inability to purge was a direct parallel to my inability to cry out for help. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: My instinct was just to swallow my anxiety and my horror and my feelings of isolation and helplessness and pain rather than say, ah, I need help. Hey, guy who offered me help, I'll take you up on that offer. Mm -hmm. didn't even cross my mind. Mm -hmm. And that's the workings of my personality. That's not natural. There's no one-month-old that would ever suppress their need for help. If they're anxious, they cry. If they're hungry, they cry. If they're happy, they laugh. It's Mm -hmm. immediate. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere along the line, some part of you gets the message that it is not okay to disturb other people. Mm -hmm. You need to keep that to yourself and deal with it on your own. It doesn't mean that those needs disappear. It just means that you swallow them. And that becomes a lifelong coping mechanism even when you're in situations where that doesn't help. Where you may have misread the signals in the first place when you were a baby that made you adopt that co- coping mechanism. And then later in life as an adult, you're in a situation where you're told, if you need help, go ahead and ask. We're here for you. And then you don't. You don't even think about it mm-hmm. because you're so conditioned. That's exactly the kind of thing that the ayahuasca and the group therapy process put me in tune with. I never knew that about myself. Mm-hmm. I never thought of myself as somebody who doesn't ask for help. And that's a, that's a very common uh, part of the show people have responded to is that they would help anybody else. But for themselves, no, no, no. I'm okay. I'm okay. Don't worry about me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That is coping mechanism.
3: Yeah. So why do you think regular therapy didn't really work in the play you talk about? You'd done regular therapy before, but it hadn't helped.
2: Well, it, it, did, it did good for me. I don't want to discount that. Like I did get a lot out of just regular talk therapy. But the thing about ayahuasca is it's just so incredibly visceral.
1: Mm -hmm. There is
2: brain science to show exactly what's happening. Uh, There's there's a documentary about Gabor's exploration of ayahuasca. It's on the CBC website, and it's called The Jungle Prescription. So if you go at cbc.ca and then search for jungle prescription, you can watch this. It's about 45 minutes. He goes to a university in Barcelona where they've done brain scans of people on the plant, and it shows how one one of the areas of the brain that's activated is the amygdala, where we store a lot of our deepest traumas. So you get a shortcut that part of yourself that's buried that is accessible through perhaps years or even decades of therapy you know you can get there in a different way just ayahuasca you get there in one night Mm -hmm. so it's valuable in that you're suddenly confronted with this huge thing and then you have to figure out what to do with it it's unfortunate though because because you got there so quickly it might foster the expectation that i've taken care of that i'm good now I've dealt with that mm-hmm. when that's not necessarily the case mm-hmm. you still have to integrate that into your life which is actually easier if you've gone through years of talk therapy because you've built up to it and you've come to understand it slowly and gradually and to to put practices into place to help to help you deal with whatever that is
3: mm-hmm. yeah it seems like there's different mechanisms that might be a place so it actually affects the part of your brain that's Deals with emotion and memory and connections to yeah. other people and things like that. Um, the therapy we use with the veterans has a lot of touch and a lot of storytelling um, and a lot of witnessing by other people. But it's very experiential in the same like that people act out their traumas and then they get sort of witnessed and affirmed by the people around. So, you know, they suspect it acts sort of in a similar way on the amygdala. And so I wonder if, in one sense, the ayahuasca is kind of a body therapy, like in because it affects, you know, the senses versus just the cognitive parts of the brain. Very much. But I guess it's also, you know, the the sort of magic and mystery part of it as well, Mm -hmm. and the whole spirit part of the Aboriginal healing traditions, which gets missed, obviously, in Western psychotherapy as we kind of push for perfection and success and.
2: And a lot of us in the West, in the first world, don't actually believe in the existence of spirit. Mm-hmm. Or we might believe about it in theory. Mm-hmm. But the shamans tell us, and this is what the traditions say, is that the, this, the plant has a spirit. And the spirit has a cognizance. And it is aware of you individually. And when you drink it, it's a tea. It goes into you and it sees what you need and it gives you the experience that you need. Now, for a first world Western person, that is somewhat hard to believe.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But at least for the sake of the retreat, I was willing to go along with it. It would be tremendously arrogant of me to believe that Western science knows everything there is to know about everything, that there are levels to reality that our current methods of analyzing the world have completely controlled. So why not be open to that possibility? And the thing is, it does have a radically different effect on everybody. Everybody drinks the same tea, and everybody has a very different experience. Mm -hmm. And then each individual person has a different experience every time they do it. Mm -hmm. So if you were a 100% scientific materialist, um, at least you could think that it is exquisitely sensitive to the differences between people and the differences between people on a given day. Mm-hmm. Or if you're willing to to go out on a limb and say there is a spiritual component that is healing you on a spiritual level and it is aware of you and interacting with you on a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us are wounded in that we've lost our connection to spirit, which really ties into our quest for meaning.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason addiction is so prevalent because as a society, were cut off from that and that rat park study that came up, I think, in the question and answer period. So in a nutshell, you know, they had rats uh, that were addicted to morphine in a cage. And then they moved addicted rats into a beautiful utopian kind of giant Rat Park, which was like green and they had tons of other rats. And then they had, even though they were already addicted, they had the choice between morphine water and just plain water. And they chose the plain water because the environment was conducive to their health. That's right. And I find that personally in my own experience with addiction, when conditions are right, you know, I I won't play out those addictive patterns. But when things aren't right, I'll sort of reach for that you know.
2: Stress triggers. Yeah. Compulsions. Mm -hmm. Whether that compulsion is addiction or compulsively helping other people or or any number of ways a compulsion can play out. Yeah. And to be disconnected from nature is not the way we evolved. Mm -hmm. To be disconnected from our community is not the way we evolved. We evolved in families and groups, villages, clans. Now it's completely common not to know one's neighbors, including myself. I live in an apartment building. I don't know my neighbors. Mm -hmm. I think I've... I've spoken to them once, and that's mm-hmm. normal. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely the norm.
3: I went to Victoria on the weekend, and people are so friendly there um, in the area where my family lives, and, and people were friendly, and I, th- I became paranoid and suspicious, like, they must be being sarcastic, <laughs> or they can't really be this nice, you know, so yeah. We, it's not natural. <laughs> it's not natural.
2: <laughs> we're also generally alienated from our work. Yeah. We have just accepted the notion that the most important aspect of modern life is wealth, stability, fame, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So we're perfectly willing to do work that doesn't satisfy us emotionally or spiritually in order for money. Um, I used to work at Canada Post, and that was very common there. You know, It was just accepted. Nobody liked working there. It wasn't a terrible place to live. Nobody went postal. Nobody was shooting <laughs> anybody. Uh, but it, w- it wasn't a pleasant environment. I mean, I was working in customer service, so I was dealing with people who were angry that their packages had been lost. That's a very unpleasant way to spend your time,
1: mm-hmm. to have
2: people constantly angry with you. Whereas, if people have have work that is meaningful, that is fulfilling, then you feel a higher sense of purpose, and you don't have to drown out your regular um, consciousness with television, or with alcohol, mm-hmm. or with marijuana. Even
3: yeah, I mean that's so true. Yet yeah, just, to just make a counterpoint, I'm thinking of Gene Simmons because you said your birthday's August twenty second, and Gene Simmons from Kiss is born on August twenty fifth, and his philosophy about work is that we've become too entitled as a society saying we should have work we enjoy and if not we'll be unhappy and that we should just kind of be glad to have any job at all like he grew up dirt poor his mother was in Auschwitz and so on so that we should be his mother was a what? Uh, his mother was um, a prisoner at Auschwitz oh
0: okay yeah
3: okay. Um, and then and so he says that that we're too entitled that we think we should have these wonderful jobs when, in fact, you know, we should be satisfied with a regular job.
2: Like being a rock star.
3: Like being a giant, filthy, rich (laughs) rock star. Like, yeah, easy for him to say, right?
2: Well, an interesting thing, too, is that it is very common for rock stars to be completely miserable.
3: Mm -hmm. Is it?
2: Yeah, I've actually been, over the last year, reading uh, rock star biographies and autobiographies, specifically focusing on rock stars who destroyed themselves either so who died young or who just battled addiction off and on for their entire lives. And it's a long list. Mm-hmm. It's a very long list. I've hit about 25 books so far and I'm nowhere near the end. And this actually connects with some of Gabor's work because his thesis is that addiction is rooted in early tra- uh, early childhood experiences, usually traumatic experiences in early childhood and reading about the life of Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix or Judy Garland or, um, Uh, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys or Kurt Cobain or Elliot Smith or Nick Drake. You know, it's a very long Mm -hmm. list. Person after person, you find out that there was trauma in their family. Kurt Cobain's relatives committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Nick Drake was born in the middle of a political upheaval in Burma. Um, Greg Allman from the Allman Brothers, his father was murdered when he was two. Jim Morrison's father was an admiral of a ship at sea, and he was never home, and then he later claimed he was sexually abused by his father, and his father was very strict uh, mm-hmm. a disciplinarian. Elliot Smith claims he was sexually abused by his stepfather. Like, there's all... Judy Garland was mm-hmm. given amphetamines by her mother when she was 10. Yeah. And sleeping pills. Yeah. Like, there's all kinds of invasion of boundaries so that a person then later goes on to achieve wealth and fame and success and all the love they could want and in the case of male rock stars, all the sex they could ever want and then they're not happy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: That, is, that doesn't satisfy them at all. They snort cocaine like crazy. They mm-hmm. shoot themselves up. They... They they go through bitter divorces. They they feud with their bandmates. They they can't enjoy the su- success that they have. Yeah,
3: definitely, I agree a hundred percent with Gabor and Mate, and well, most everybody's on the same page of the role of trauma in um, like physically, people don't develop as they should. Like like uh, physiologically, people's brains don't develop as they should when they undergo trauma or abuse. Um, and then, maybe also certain inherited characteristics like um they'll talk about temperamentally people that are sensation seekers, mm-hmm. so they they you know more needing to go for riskier sensations um and that can be just a personality trait and that um and maybe even the artistic temperament itself can make some people more prone to seeking addiction as a form of relief, but i mean Everybody who's unhappy has something, as you sort of suggested, with compulsions. It might be shopping addiction, gambling addiction, sex addiction. I mean, there's a myriad of ways we can distract. Facebook addiction. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's one of the worst. It's days. one of the worst addictions, yeah. which is why I haven't been on Facebook as much as I used to.
2: Oh, I was on Facebook right before we went on the air. Like, I'm not, I'm not can we be Facebook friends? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs>
3: um but uh I'll inundate
2: you with Farmville requests. I just oh, want to yeah. warn you right now.
3: I don't play those quizzes. But yeah, um there was something else I was gonna say about that uh I can't remember. Oh anyways, just uh thing when in the question and answer period he said he wouldn't do ayahuasca with people that had mental illness and I think he specifically said bipolar. And I took some offense because I have bipolar disorder and I was like, so I wouldn't so I wouldn't be able to do it and I just felt like I wanted to say, well, it depends on the person, you know. In the sense of someone who's very mentally unstable or temperamentally unstable, you wouldn't—it wouldn't be a good idea.
2: Well, he, because uh, I've heard him answer that question a number of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, he would if he had the opportunity to work with them over a long period of time on mm-hmm. the retreats that he conducts. Because he, he does these in Mexico now that he's not allowed to do them in Canada anymore under threat of arrest. It's only for a week, mm-hmm. and people stay in touch by email or by Facebook, but. Somebody who's had a manic or a psychotic episode can be triggered weeks or months later. Mm -hmm. And if they're not in a context that can accept them and contain them and care for them, then they might just go off. And there was actually a friend of mine who had a friend who went to Peru and did ayahuasca, and it triggered his mania. Yeah. And then he was suddenly $20,000 in debt on a credit card and was doing things like buying scooters for villagers (laughs) because they needed it. (laughs) He just went into that space. That's
3: so bipolar, yeah.
2: But if he was staying in a clinic where there were people that he could work with, where he was doing some work that was meaningful to them, where he was part of the community, then it would be perfectly Mm -hmm. fine. In fact, it would be really Mm -hmm. healing for him. But like I was saying before, we tend to not know anyone. Mm -hmm. We tend to know our immediate family, and they live far away. You know, that's very Mm -hmm. common. People live in a different city or different province or different country than their family. People commonly move for work. We tend not to know our neighbors. Our friends are scattered. We don't see them that often. So it's, it's... very hard for people to get the help and the regular attention that they need,
3: mm-hmm. yeah, I mean definitely, in the distant past of high school and young adulthood, I never did never had good trips, like when you described your bad trip, that's like every trip I've ever had, kind of oh. a nightmarish experience, so yeah, but no, it's really interesting, and um, you know, I think if it wasn't for the puking thing, I probably would be open to it, but
2: The puking is awful. It's
3: it's too much for me. The buckets, as soon as you said buckets, I was like, no, I can't do it.
2: Not only that, but one of the effects of ayahuasca is it heightens your senses quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So not only were we doing this in a room, a circular room with very good acoustics, (laughs) but everybody's Uh. hearing is heightened. And, like, there were 26 of us there. Most of them were puking for the better part of two or three hours. Oh, So you're hearing this medley, this symphony of barf that just goes and goes and goes, and people are making sounds like I had never heard before.
3: Oh, so you actually underplayed that. Oh, yeah. In in your one-man show.
2: Yeah, it's quite horrific. People are making, like, lizard sounds.
3: Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I actually have to stop you because I'm starting to get a bit panicky, but maybe I should do it to overcome my phobia.
2: Maybe to dive right into your fear.
3: But I was thinking, like, um, you know, that's an unconventional therapy, ayahuasca. What about other... Like when you, I, I don't want to give it away because it's such an important um, part of your show, your own kind of core issue that you took to the group to resolve. And I was thinking, like, you know, do you believe in past lives? Do you believe like some something like what you described? might be a residue from a past life? Or is that something you're willing to consider?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because that
3: to me, because you couldn't seem to find an answer to me by the end of the play.
2: The difficulty with past lives is it's impossible to verify. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't invalidate it as a possibility. It's just according to what we're able to prove, it's impossible to know for sure. So it could, there could be emotional resonances from past lives. It could be that we are spiritually connected to everyone who's ever lived. Like we're all spokes on the same wheel. Um, I recently read a book called The Jaguar That Roams the Mind by Robert Tyndall. He's a San Francisco writer, and teacher, and he traveled through Brazil and Peru and partook in ayahuasca in a number of different contexts, a number of different times, and he wrote that book about it. It's an excellent book. And one of the things he talks about was at a certain point it's possible if you're working in the right context for the healing, not just to heal you, but heal your ancestors that are still there in you. Oh, wow. Because we all have cultural wounds that go back very, very far, mm-hmm. hundreds or thousands of years.
3: So that's interesting, and I don't know if it was something, I think it was talked about in the question and answer or maybe even in your play, but it's certainly related, the idea of epigenetics.
0: That's right. Did, yeah. And
3: that we inherit, so if your grandparents were in, you know, the prison camps in Germany that then it's, it's traumatic to future generations. It turns on genes, say, for anxiety or right. for other things that weren't present before. And so well, they, they affect us, but that's a totally cool, unique idea that they, we can also affect them and heal the past.
2: Yeah, and heal the part of them that's still in us. Mm-hmm. So grandparents who are in a prison camp are going to be very stressed as they raise their children, even if those children were born outside of the prison camp in a time of total peace and prosperity the parents still carry the stress of having of that experience. So those kids are raised in a stressful environment and then they grow up and then they have kids and then they raise their kids in a stressful environment because they're carrying stress from their parents that they themselves don't even realize they have. They mm-hmm. just think this is normal. Mm-hmm. This is just what it's like to be a person, to have this constant anxiety or this constant fear or this constant dread of being taken away or having everything taken away from you or just there being constant scarcity. It's not actually based on the actual reality that's happening now. It's based on a past experience that isn't, might not even be yours, mm-hmm. but it's still there, and you're not even conscious of it. Yeah. So this this thing passes for generations. A, a term Gabor uses in his books, the dance of generations. You know, everybody does the best they can with what they have, but most of us have no idea what we have and don't have. <laughs> ah. How many of us intimately know the emotional lives of our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents? You know, we might know some details, but we don't really know. And how many of, them, how many of us know that about ourselves? You know, mm-hmm. how many people could say that even if they wanted to? It also just defies convention for parents to really open up their vulnerabilities to their kids, much less grandparents.
3: Mm-hmm. What's that, you know, famous quote? Kind of overused, like we are in—we contain infinite possibilities or multitudes. Or
2: we are, yeah, uh, that's Walt Whitman, I believe. Yeah, I'm, I'm—it's not huge, but <laughs> I'm huge. I'm massive. I contain multitudes. I'm vast. That's it. Yeah, vast. isn't vast.
3: that nice? I like that. I'm just looking at the time, and we've just chatted away for. Close to thirty-five minutes, and I well, actually I'm, have some other content I have to cover.
2: Well, okay then.
3: <laughs> I hate to, I hate to close up, but um, you were telling me that uh, hometown hero AC Newman did the score for a play of yours, or a, sorry, a film. Tell us about your film, and we'll see you out with some AC Newman.
2: Okay, uh, in two thousand three, I co-wrote a play called Toothpaste and Cigars with a good friend and writing partner Mike Rinaldi. And it's about unrequited love. And just this past September, the movie of that play debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival. And the star is Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter himself. And the score was written by Vancouver's own A.C. Newman. And it was wonderful, and it was very well received, and it will get general distribution, I believe, in July, possibly under a different title. The The working title of the film is The F Word, F being friend. It's about a guy who falls in love with a girl, but she has a boyfriend. But they really connect. And they hang out a lot, but he can't make a move because she's in a right. good relationship. So what do you do?
3: What if your friends and they don't have a girlfriend, but it's still unrequited?
2: Oh, that's that's a different story. That's true. <laughs> also a different dilemma and a very difficult situation.
3: Yes. Well, we will cover that. We will get in touch with you again, TJ, and cover the F word closer to the time in July. Um, and why don't you just remind us about medicine and some of the details when it's when it's on and when it runs to
2: medicine plays every night at eight at the fire hall theater for the rest of this week except for saturday in which it plays at five o'clock and nine o'clock you can go to the website firehallartscenter.ca
3: awesome thank you so here's ac newman from his album get guilty this one is called the heartbreak rides <music>
1: Was she let the modern sunset to a window? Just, just with a plate in hand, she said, Let's go, Ellie." She cried. The hungry ride. Come see Punk Legends D.O.A. at the Rickshaw. It's the release party for D.O.A.'s new live album, Welcome to Chinatown. It's going to be a wild night as D.O.A. welcomes special guests, the Ford Pier Vengeance Trio, Aging Youth Gang, the return of Mr. Plough, and introducing Jenny from Calgary. See Canada's top punk band D.O.A. Friday, February 7th at the Rickshaw. Tickets at Zulu, Red Cat, Scrape, High Life, Neptune, and Northern Tickets. For more info, go to www.suddendeath.com. More Than Human is hosting a party to celebrate this new electronic experimental Vancouver record label. An evening of mind expanding live performances from Common Vernacular, Kensington Gore, Plays 4 and The Passenger. Strange intermission music featuring cosmic beats, weird soundtracks and dusty library music all accompanied by images of pagan sacrifice and public information films. It all takes place on January the 31st, 2014 at the Red Gate, 855 East Hastings, and it costs 10 Canadian dollars. The ritual begins at 9.
3: Hi, you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. I'm your host for tonight, Sarah Lapsley. That was TJ Daw from the play Medicine, and we had a lovely chat. Um, And now I must quickly move on because I've got a fantastic interview with Eric Rutherford. He is the genius behind Ryberg.com. Ryberg.com publishes essays about books, movies, internet culture, celebrity, sex, relationships, sports, identity, illness, cute animals, self-image, rage, death, all the good stuff. Um... And what distinguishes Ryberg is the fact that every essay includes YouTube videos. So they're really, um, you know, heady, engaging, sort of, I hate to say the word cutting edge. I don't know how, what else to say, uh, what other word to use rather, but um, sort of, and then curated videos. Um, so they're fantastic stuff. I The only thing I can compare it to is like how, you know, this website, the Satorialist Um like the sartorialist is to fashion what Ryberg is to like literature. Uh, it's just fantastic. And some of the uh, people that write essays and curate videos: um, Lynn Crosby, she's amazing. Uh, John Davies, John Paul Fiorento, Sean Dixon, Rob Benvey from Thrush Hermit. We'll play a bit of Thrush Hermit. Sheila Hedy, Peter Lynch, um, and Eric Rutherford is the um, founder originator of ryberg.com and he does also a lot of essays he's got a great one on here about tanya harding um and he's coming to vancouver as part of a uh, the push festival and he'll be playing um where's oh yeah January 26 2014 Ryberg live so reading the essays aloud and there's several authors that will be doing that and playing the video so everyone can enjoy it together so I spoke to him yesterday Uh, we had a great talk the audio probably isn't that fantastic because I couldn't reach him we had some technical problems so we had to use google phone Um, but he'll tell you about ryberg.com we had a fun chat I'll definitely be going to the push festival this weekend he went to Oxford. He lived in Paris. He's like bilingual, but you like he's so gracious and patient and smart and like humble. He was just awesome. Um, so I'm going to play. Hopefully this will play well. Um, and so as far as I know, here he is, Eric Rutherford from Ryberg.com.
4: dot Years old now, I'm coming up to five years, which is hard to believe. Um, I launched it in June 2009. Uh, just about four years after uh, YouTube came into the world, and um it was just a simple idea um it's essentially an online magazine, but uh all of the essays that are published there include uh video clips um and not video clips made expressly for the 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 essays but found on YouTube and other video sites and um it just seemed like a good idea I was at a party and someone showed a video on YouTube and then everybody started arguing about it and discussing it and I thought, hey, this could be an interesting platform.
3: So how many do you do a month or is there a certain you know
4: Well Yeah, there's no um it's not it's not steady. Um I'd say that over the four years I've probably published about 320 at this point. Um, So, and in the last couple of years, probably averaged about one every two or three weeks. Um, The site is run entirely by me. Um, I'm the editor, and uh, people approach me, or I invite people to contribute. And um, I don't know if you've looked at the list, but um, a lot of really great writers um, have uh, contributed And essentially, I think every essay, it's not so much um, a timely response to current events. I think they can be read, you know, over a period of years without losing their relevance.
3: Right. I really enjoyed the Tanya Harding one
4: that I just read before we talked. Mm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I wrote that a couple of years ago. Um, And then I just noticed there's been a lot of talk of Tanya Harding just recently, I suppose, because the uh, Olympics are coming up. Um, Yeah, what did you think about that? Did you agree with my argument?
3: (laughs) Well, I read it rather quickly, but I just, I mean, I study psychology, so I just like the juxtaposition between the two women's sort of psychologies and backgrounds and how we perceive them and how you, you know, you sort of saw us look at them a little bit differently, kind of like, um, who was the good one? Nancy, like, how she wasn't that good or she had elements we we could only see her in a good light, you know, even though she had darker elements to her character as well
4: that's right, yeah, yeah, um, in fact, this is a theme that has come up quite a lot on on Ryberg since launching the site. Of course, people um, who I invite to to contribute they they choose any topic that interests them that's uh, one of the um, interesting aspects of the website, and it's I, it's been fun to see what themes emerge over time. And one of them is really celebrity and self-image and narcissism and, and the way that we are labeled by other people and sort of grow to take on and even fulfill the, the roles that other people give us, um, uh, especially with social media and so on. So that's really been explored by quite a few Writers on the website, um, big celebrity and small celebrity, and so on, and narcissism.
3: Mm-hmm. So, what what kind of things do you most enjoy? Like um, you said, you invite people and sometimes choose from people that submit to you. So, what are the kind of things that you look for?
4: Well, um, to some extent, I'm 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 a bit of a beggar. So I'm, I, <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. I, th- I do try to be choosy. I think there's um, definitely uh, an editorial gate that has to be passed through. So, you know, I'm trying to keep the quality quite high and uh, keep the contributors, um, yeah, people who have some established background in the, in writing or acting or something. Um, because uh, one of the ideas is that it's a bit of a show and tell um, for the people are contributing, like, look what I found and here it is, so the things I look for um, I think personally, I quite like the more nostalgic pieces, because um, in this age of uploading videos so much of the content is nostalgic things from the 80s and 70s things people have dug up, and then um, inevitably uh, when someone comes to write about it, they attach some personal story um, so I quite like that and then there's some straightforward analysis. It's always great to um, to read a, a piece which just takes apart a video or a, an MTV music video or something and really helps you see it in a way you didn't see it before. Um, so I think the real, um, what, what you'll find on the website is, because there's so many video aggregation sites that organize and categorize videos um, but offer no comment. There's there's no mediation between the video and you. You watch it, but the video doesn't really speak for itself. Um, so what Ryberg does, and it's the same with Ryberg Live, you watch these videos, but they're presented in a real human context related to a person who's choosing to show it to you and they're explaining why they're showing it to you.
3: Mm-hmm. So they're sort of interrelating with it. So what does the video offer that the text can't and vice versa? Like, how do they complement each other in your mind?
4: Well, I think that they don't marry very well. I I think that video, the moving image, always trumps text. It's far more seductive. It's far more powerful. Um, So I think all of us are far more likely to watch a video that's on a page before we read whatever text is next to it. Really? So I was quite aware of this. Well, that's what I think, but, you know, um, maybe maybe uh, you have a different experience. But I think th- there's a lot of evidence for this. If you look at this recent trend the last year, um, these upworthy uh, titles, like the second minute of this video will blow your mind, or dude was asked a question and he couldn't answer, you won't believe what he said, this kind of thing. Um it's sort of <laughs> pre-digesting the video for us. Right. And then when we sit down to watch it, that is what we are looking for. It it really narrows our experience with video. Um and it works because it's it's not just clickbait, but it also um it also tells us what we're in for so we, we we won't waste any time. Because when we're surfing the net we're impatient. Like, okay, this is what I'm gonna see, good, I'll watch it. Um and in this sense, Ryberg is the exact opposite. It, it asks for quite a lot of engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, to read an essay and watch the videos, you know, it can take between 15 minutes and an hour. Um, but uh, hopefully it's it's providing a much greater service to your intellect and spirit. Yeah, I think that's it's... That's answered the question.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's it's a happy medium because we are hungry for quick bites of information yet it does invite you to really engage intellectually um on a fun topic too i was noticing like one of the categories is animals and pets and you know how ubiquitous are these animal and pets videos
4: that's right yeah and and that's another thing i should mention about it it's really the marriage of uh highbrow and lowbrow because it's kind of a the traditional discursive essay meets this disposable video material uh like cute pets and so on um (laughs) and we all love to watch cute dogs and so on but it's interesting to see how maybe a writer that you like will react to that or what he might say about that um
3: tell me a little bit about this the history of the essay like i don't know much about that what role it's played sort of in civilization
4: well, that's well that's a tough question. Um, well the, the the essay certainly precedes the novel um, and the most famous essayist must be Samuel Johnson um, and it's um yeah I suppose there's a technique for essay writing which, veers towards the journalistic there's a there's the requirement of a certain objectivity a certain cold detachment to whatever topic you're discussing um and in in a sense ryberg is very open to essays being personal and i I do think we live in an age when um people are hungry for personal stories They, they like to in fact the documentary is so popular, and the personal essay is so popular, because people want to somehow attach learning to a particular individual and their experience of things. Um, so I can certainly say I feel the essay has changed. Um, it um, it's not as maybe the writer is not as discreet. Um, but uh, yeah, what is the role of the essay? I suppose. Its role is to influence people and to, um, whereas a novel and a poem might exercise the imagination and nourish the empathy of a person, I suppose the essay exercises the intellect.
3: We're back on CITR. 101.9 FM that was Eric Rutherford the brilliant Eric Rutherford from ryberg.com we ha- i have some more interview with him um but we are running out of time but maybe i could play that down the road um ryberg live will be in vancouver as part of the push performing arts festival 26th of january at 7 p.m. at club push that's at performance works on granville island so I was a real thrilled to talk to him and uh, i pitched him on an essay about the Iceman, my favorite serial killer. So um, I hope he likes it when I write it. But um, I wanted to tell you about The Seagull. It's a play, uh, as put On by the Theatre at UBC at the TELUS Studio Theatre. It's a Chekhov play, The Seagull. It's directed by Kathleen DuBorg and it starts tomorrow night and goes to February 8th. So we'll be covering it on the Arts Report in the coming weeks, but we have a ticket giveaway. Um, so win tickets for two to see Theatre at UBC's production of The Seagull. Kathleen DuBorg directs UBC's uh, BFA Acting Conservatory and Chekhov's Tragicom. Tra- <laughs> Why is this a tongue twister? comic tangle of romance, intrigue, and unrequited love. It's the second time the theme of unrequited love has come up tonight. I don't like it. One little bit. It's at the Telestudio Chan Center from January 23rd to February 8th. Um, here's what you do, dear listeners. I know there are many of you. Just be the first person to email publicity.theater at ubc.ca with win tickets in the subject line. Um so please um please 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 email publicity.theater at ubc.ca to win tickets to checkoffs the seagull. Um it was a bit distracting during my interview with Eric Rutherford because there was some wrestling in the background, and that wrestling was uh made by a person I just met yesterday. Uh Wade Jordan he's from Discord or radio and is quite involved around the station um, and it turns out he's a journalism student and he's trying to raise funds to get himself and some friends to the Sochi Olympics uh, he wants to report on the cultural experience um, and he wrote to me saying despite all of the controversial press about Sochi I believe in the power of the Olympic movement I believe in the, you know, that horrible Olympic song I won't sing the rest for you. Um, It has the ability to break political borders, unify nations, and make believers out of the staunchest of naysayers. And I want to be the one to tell the story. So uh, I told uh, Wade that I would talk about it on the radio. Um, So if you could make a contribution, whether it is through donation or sharing the link, he would greatly appreciate the support. Um, Oh, I can't read out this giant link. But if you go to Indiegogo, I think you just type the real Sochi, a look inside the cultural and social experience. Um, Maybe I'll share it on the arts report page. How about I do that? Check out, do check out our Facebook page and our Twitter, uh, CITR underscore arts report. I'm going to be getting more involved at the arts report as it turns out um, in the coming months. I'm going to be taking on um, more duties. So... Um, do you like our page? Check out our page. And so I hope you get to Sochi Wade Jordan. Now, I'm just a few minutes before the top of the hour. I think I'm going to wrap up because we have um, blank verse on next, but I wanted to play a song. One of the writers on Ryberg.com is Rob Benvie, and he was in the Halifax band Thresh Hermit with Joel Plaskett. And so I thought it'd be fun to play Thrush Hermit as an outro. Um, But stick around after that. And I'll be introducing a blank verse and and staying here till 630 um, to do that. And I love the song, The Day We Hit the Coast. So I'm playing this to welcome Eric Rutherford to the Push Festival. Check out the Push Festival. There's tons going on right now. And there are many more festivals coming up the Talking Stick Festival, the Hutzpah Festival. Um, it's all year round. We're apparently the number two most expensive city in the world in Vancouver. Unbelievable. Um, but we've got lots of great arts programming, and I'm going to re- be reporting on it all in 2014. So I'm Sarah Lapsley. I'm your host for tonight. Goodbye and thank you. Um, well, I'll be actually back in like four minutes. So this is Thresh Charmit, the day we hit the coast.
1: Are you not sure where to go on campus? Traveling late at night and afraid to go alone? Call SafeWalk, a free service where a co-ed team will take you anywhere you need to go on campus. Don't walk alone. For a walk, add SafeWalk to your phone. Call 604-822-5355. That's 604-822-5355. Alternatively, use a UBC Blue phone and ask for SafeWalk, approach any SafeWalk team, or drop by our office on the main floor of the sub across from the Gallery Lounge.